Uh, dear Father, as we come before you today, I really pray that uh, you will help us all uh, to really learn the lessons of Proverbs chapter 2. For your words are powerful and they are profound, but they hold much promise to us who truly listen to them and obey them. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, do you ever feel tired? Hey, do you ever feel tired? I'm sure you do, because most Singaporeans, uh, whenever I ask them how they are, they always say to me, oh, very tired, very tired. Everybody's very tired, right? But I think there's a different sort of tiredness that we uh, experience, isn't it? There's the physical tiredness, but there's also a spiritual tiredness. Where some people say to me, you know, it's very tiring being a Christian. And what they actually mean by that is it's very tiring to live as a Christian. So do you ever feel tired in that way? Tired of living as a Christian? Tired of uh, doing what the Bible says because it seems so, so hard and it seems so repetitive that every week you have to keep doing the same things and you still suffer and struggle as a result. It seems so much easier to give in to uh, what comes naturally. Now I think that uh, as we look at uh, this passage today, it seems to answer those sort of questions because uh, last week and the week before we were looking at the nature of wisdom and we saw that we cannot really get true wisdom by observing the world uh, from a bottom-up perspective, right? You, you, you can observe the world, you can get wisdom in a certain way, but you cannot get true wisdom. And the true wisdom can only come from God, because God is the creator of the world, He's the maker of the world, and He gives us wisdom. And we hold that wisdom in our hands when we read uh, the Bible. But the question that uh, is following on from that is, okay, so we know God's wisdom is given to us, He gives it to us in the Bible, but the question is, do we want to take the trouble to actually read it and uh, after reading it, do we want to take the trouble to process it and actually live it out? Right? Why should we do it year after year, week after week, day after day, when it seems uh, really difficult and it seems that in many times we don't actually get uh, much profit out of it? Now, if you look at uh, Proverbs chapter 2, and this is where we're really going to get into it, okay, uh, believe it or not, verse 1 to 22 in the original language is actually one long sentence. Okay, so uh, if you think that Proverbs 2 is difficult, well, think about how it would have been for the original person when it's all one long sentence. So how do you actually understand Proverbs chapter 2? Well, I think the way to really understand it is to look at all the transition words. If you look at the passage, uh, especially uh, if you have the NIV, you can see that there are ifs and then and for and thus. So if you actually have a highlighter, that's excellent because uh, I've highlighted all these words, all the ifs and thens, the fors and the thus, and it actually makes... Proverbs 2 just unpack itself. It's really easy to understand then. Okay, so maybe if you have a pencil or whatever, you can circle all the ifs as I go along in the thens and the fours and the thus. Okay, so we begin in chapter 2 with uh, verse 1 to verse 4. And you notice there in verse 1 to verse 4, there are three ifs. Okay, if, you know ifs, there are three ifs. Okay, and it begins like this. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, Turn your ear to wisdom and applying, it, your, applying your heart to understanding. And if you call out for understanding, insight and cry out for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure. So there are three ifs there, right? You can highlight it. I've got like six different colors all over my Bible. You know, basically what it's saying is, Right from the very beginning of chapter 2, he's not commanding you to do anything. He's not instructing you to do anything. He says, you must do this. He's inviting you. It's like the father or the parent is inviting the child to make the right choice. Not because he says, you know, I'm, I'm your father. You live in my house. Do this. He's, he's inviting the child or the son to do the right thing 
because he is logically explaining to the child why he should follow wisdom. What is the, what, what, why is this the right way for you? I care for you and why should you follow this? And the first if in verse 2 says, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you. And, and what's happening here is each verse actually builds on the other one, right? So it's really quite a poetic thing. And what it begins by saying is, it's not enough to listen to wisdom. You must accept wisdom. You must accept the words of God. It's not enough to come to the Bible with an open mind, but you must be willing and ready uh, and uh, eager to accept what God is saying, what the Father is saying to the Son. But again, it's not enough to just listen to it and accept my words, but you must store up the commands within you. You must take it in and actually process it and apply it in your life. And that's why verse 2 and verse, uh, verse two repeats the same idea, but sort of uses different imagery. He says, turning your ear to wisdom, right? Turning your ear to wisdom and your heart to understanding. Again, it's the same idea, but different, expressed in different ways. It's the idea of ear and heart. You can hear something in your ear, take it into your mind, but then it's not enough to just listen to it and take it in your ear. You need to take it in your heart. You need to take it to heart to extort it and accept it. Same thing, right? Same idea. You, you, you accept and you store, you listen and you apply to your heart. But he says it's not even enough to come to God's word or God's wisdom by listening and applying. You must have a, a desire to really want to, to learn, to really learn. Look at what it says in verse 3. If you call out for insight, if you cry aloud for understanding. It's, it's the idea of, um, you know, when you go to the hawker centre and you're trying to get the attention of the drinks lady to buy your 7-Up or they or whatever, right? Or you go to a restaurant and you want the attention of the waiter. Then you put your hand up and you say, you know, I, I know come over here, I'll come over here. I need, I need your uh, assistance. And that's what uh, you know, this passage in verse 2 is saying. We, we must have an eagerness, a craving, an energy to want to learn from God's Word. It's not a bow-chop attitude, a passive attitude. He's saying that the Father is saying to the Son, you must actively seek God's wisdom. But how much effort must we put into that? Well, in verse 4, it, it, it even increases it even more, right? It's like it raises the stakes. There's more intensity. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure. Now, obviously, we're not treasure hunters, but what is he trying to say here? You can imagine the picture, isn't it, of someone who's searching for treasure, of searching for pearls or silver. There's, there's a great singleness of intensity. Uh, if you've ever seen this movie, um, I don't think it's a very famous movie, it's called There Will Be Blood. In 2007, uh, it won the Best Actor uh, Award in the Academy Awards. And it's about this guy who's looking for oil, looking for oil in America. And I remember watching the movie, and uh, he breaks his leg. You know, he's, he's going down this shaft to look for oil, and he breaks his leg. And even with a broken leg, he gets it all patched up. He still keeps looking for oil. Right? That's how much his single-minded pursuit of oil is. Okay? Because, you know, oil, if he strikes oil, he'll be rich for the rest of his life. And that's, what, that's the picture that's seen here. Right? It's not enough just to want to listen and to apply. It's not enough just to cry out and call out to wisdom. You must search for it single-mindedly and to listen to what God has to say. And when I uh, read this passage, I think, hopefully when you read it too, you, you ask yourself, is that my attitude to God's wisdom? Is that my attitude to God's word? Do I seek 
God's wisdom in that way, crying out to it and seeking its single-minded purpose. Uh, I mean, I was just remembering this last week. I don't think I read the Bible all that often, especially Chinese New Year. I, I'm sure it must be the same for you, right? But, but this is the sort of idea of how we need to transform our lives to God's Word. We must really seek to want to learn from it and listen to it. So this pastor was saying, you know, think of how much effort you spend into your career or acquiring money, money or your sport or your hobby. Uh, do you spend the same amount of effort in terms of really seeking God's wisdom as you do at work or your sport or your hobby? Now, another thing also as you look at it, it really reminds you that God's wisdom comes from reading His Word. Because some people say to me, you know, I don't really like reading the Bible very much. Isn't it easier just to read books? You know, is it much easier just to read Christian books? And maybe listen to uh, sermons on, uh, you know, on the way to work on your MP3. But the passage is not saying that. He's just saying, you know, listen to my words and my commands. Uh, it doesn't say go to the synagogue and listen to the synagogue teacher. Right? And therefore, if you look at verse 6, turn me to verse 6. It says, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Right? So, it, he doesn't actually say, well, you know, the answer is to keep reading Christian books or to go and listen to sermons. It is to keep coming to God's Word in the Bible that helps you grow. I was reading this uh, preaching book, which uh, was quite interesting. They said that there was this study done where... Uh, they took 47 sermons which were preached in America on the prodigal son. And they found that actually many of the sermons were very, very uh, light on sin. You know, the, the parable of the prodigal son is about sin, right? Originally, the son goes away from the father. And the, and the preacher kept putting sin in terms of the people outside of church. They are the really bad people. Or if it's someone in church, well, it's the, it's the person who's really, really bad in church who really cannot exist. Lah. This person cannot exist in church at all, right? Or it's some sort of therapy, you know, like if you're sinned this way, you know, we're really sorry for you. But just because the pastor uh, is shaped by the social context that he's in, doesn't mean that we, we only listen to the pastor. Right? You must listen to God's word. Look, this is why it says there in verse 6, the Lord is the one who gives wisdom. And therefore, the question is, we must keep wanting to come to God's word and reading it and be challenged by it. Uh, as often as we can to seek it as gold or silver to want to find God's wisdom for our life. Now, if you look on to verse 5, okay, look to verse 5 in your Bibles, if you've got your highlighters or your pens, you can notice in verse 5 and verse 9 there are then two thens which are followed by the if. Uh, you know what then is, right? If you do this, then this will happen, okay? If you work hard, you'll do well, then you'll do well, you know that sort of thing. There's a consequence to what happens if you search for wisdom in this way. So what are the dens then? Okay, next slide. Okay. It says there, if you search for wisdom like this, with single-minded purpose, if you cry out for it, what happens? Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright he is a shield to those who, whose walk is blameless, for he guards the cause of the judge and protects the way of his faithful ones. Now, if you seek wisdom in this way, then what happens? You will understand the fear of the Lord. 
Now we've said over the last few weeks, there is no relationship to God except through the fear of Him. Uh, the awe of Him, the reverence of Him, not uh, to be terrified of Him. Okay? We must respect God as God. Uh, our relationship to God is not as a buddy or a friend or even a mentor or a teacher, but He is God. So we, we reverence Him, we have awe for Him. But in, in, in uh, the next half of verse 5, it says, And then we will find the knowledge of God. Now, it doesn't say we will have the knowledge about God, but we will have knowledge of God. The whole idea of this word, this phrase, uh, the knowledge of God, is that we enter into a personal relationship with God, and through that relationship we get God's knowledge. Okay, we, 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 we know God, but God knows us. And because of that relationship, we, we know the knowledge that God has. And if you notice, there's a strange cycle involved. Uh, you would have noticed it in the Bible study question. Where, if you seek wisdom, you will find God. But as you find God, you will get more wisdom. Right? There's a cycle, isn't it? As you, as you know God, you will get wisdom. But as you seek wisdom, you also know God. There's a virtuous cycle that's involved here. And as you have a relationship with God and you get knowledge and wisdom, you will get protection because that's what verse five, 7 to 8 talks about, right? You will have a shield. He's a shield for those whose walk is blameless. He guards the course of the, judge, of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. He watches over you, uh, in other words, right? And to summarize all those three terms. Now, when you think about it, that is the prime benefit, one of the key benefits of following wisdom and having a relationship with God, because God is your guard. God is watching over you. God is your protector. Now, the Bible says whether we like it or not, all of us are looking for some sort of protection or something we put our trust in in this world. Uh, it might be our money. It might be our career. It might be where we live, our passport. Right? We, 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 we trust in something in this life. In Proverbs chapter 18, which is up here, notice how it talks about uh, the contrast between what we put our trust in, as in what God's people put our trust in, and what the rich put their trust in. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. See, all of us, uh, no matter how powerful we are, how capable or independent we are, we, we, we are looking for something to give us security and protection in this world. But the Bible says the only real thing that gives you protection and security in this world is God. Now, I, I realized that personally when I was a young child, when I was uh, sent to Australia when I was 12 years old, and I was very sad and lonely. And uh, I realized that I kept, you know, I, I used to cry a lot, and I, I kept looking for someone to give me protection, someone to watch over me, someone to give me advice, to help me when I was in trouble. And I found it in my uh, boarding house master, he was a very wise old Australian man, he was a maths teacher. And uh, whenever I had problems, I always went to him and asked him for advice. And whenever I was in trouble, I would give him a call, he would come and pick me up or whatever, help me out. And after that, I felt a lot more comfortable because I knew I could turn to someone in my time of need. And that's exactly what uh, God is talking about here. God is the one who protects His people, uh, supports them and helps them in their time of need. Now, nothing 
else in this world can give us that protection. The wealth, the wealthy, the rich, imagine that their riches are a fortified city, but it doesn't protect, especially on the day of death. Now, I used to remember when my children were really young, and I used to drive them uh, through this tunnel, okay, uh, and my, my, my children used to ask me, they used to get scared of the dark. Well. So they used to say, is Jesus bigger than the dinosaur? I said, yeah, yeah, Jesus is bigger than the dinosaur. Right. And uh, is Jesus bigger than the dragon? Yeah, Jesus is bigger than the dragon. Then, then they said, okay, well, then we're not scared anymore, right? Because for them, the biggest scary things were the dinosaur and the dragon, right? But I think that's the whole idea here, isn't it? Jesus is bigger, God is bigger than anything that can scare us. He's bigger than any threat in this world, even death. And uh, when we pursue wisdom this way and we know God and God knows us, there is nothing to fear in this world. But then there's a second uh, benefit that comes from walking uh, in uh, God's way. The second then, in verse 9. Okay, so if you're following your Bibles, you can circle the second then in verse 9. So then you understand what is right, just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. Now here, it says that if you pursue wisdom, you really, really pursue it, you will know what is right, just and fair, every good path. And the idea of good path here is the idea of walking. Right? You will walk on the right path. You, you, you will be on the right road, on the right journey. And um, because you're on this right path, right journey, okay, next slide, you can see. Oh, here, down, verse 20 says the same thing. You will walk in the ways of good men on the path of righteousness. Okay, so if you pursue wisdom and you live it out and you apply it, you will be walking on this good path, a right path. But walking in this path will protect you. It says there, verse 13, right? You, you will guard you. It will not guard you in the sense of where you know you have some magic amulet, right? So then all the evil forces will stay far away from you, right? Or you have some holy water or the cross and the vampire and the zombies won't get you. Actually, zombies will get you anyway, right? Okay? Right? So, how does this protect you? This understanding and discretion. Well, it, it, it protects you because with the knowledge and insight that you have, you will be protected from two particularly dangerous sorts of people. Right? You will have discretion, you will see the dangers in this world and you will learn how to avoid them and walk on the right path. And it goes on in verse 12 and verse 16 to talk about two very dangerous people that you will be saved from because you will you'll be forewarned, forearmed with the knowledge of how to avoid these people. And the first dangerous person is the wicked man, the wicked person, in verse 12 to 15. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men. Could be wicked women as well. From men whose words are perverse. Who leave the straight paths to walk in dark ways. Who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil. Whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Now, the first thing uh, we notice about this, people, uh, the wicked people is that their words are perverse. The word perverse here, uh, literally translated means is they are upside down words. They are twisted words. 
And these words of, uh, which are perverted are, are literally, they're perverted because they're upside down of what is good and right. They're twisted of what God would want them to do. They're upside down, right? They're, they're the opposite of what, is, what God is pleasing, is pleasing to God. But not only are their words uh, perverse, in verse 13 and verse 15, it says that their paths are the wrong paths. In verse 13, it says, who leave the straight paths to walk in dark ways. And in verse 15, it says, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. The wise person is walking on the good path, the right path. But the wicked person, he, he's leaving the straight path, he's walking the dark ways, the crooked roads, the, the devious ways. But more than that, their words are perverse, their paths are wrong, but in verse 14, they delight in doing wrong. The third thing, they delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil. Uh, the word here, delight, is the idea of, you know, when you do something, like your soccer team wins, or you get promotion, or you do well in exam, you say, yes, you know. So they delight, they rejoice uh, spontaneously when, uh, when, when things are evil or things are wicked. Now, the wise person is chasing after wisdom, but this perverse person, he delights, or she delights in what is bad. Now, as you look at this passage, uh, wisdom sort of challenges us, isn't it? There are three applications here. The first application is, when you look at your own life today, right now, this week, this year, uh, this lifetime, can you tell if you are on the wrong path or the right path in your life? And if, uh, even if you are on the wrong path, is there anybody that you know who will tell you that you are on the wrong path? How will you know if you are on the wrong path of life? If you are unsure of any of those answers, it's because you are not pursuing wisdom enough. It's because you are not really searching for wisdom. Even if you are on the wrong path, you will not know because you have no, there is no measure or there is no wisdom to tell you whether you are on the right or wrong path. Everything for you is relative. There, there is no anchor or there is no rock. There is no guiding light. There is no shining light which will tell you one way or another whether you are living the right path or the wrong path. You don't even know what path you're, of life you are on. The living path or the dead path. The second question, or the second application I think this passage presents to us is, are you then being influenced by wicked men or wicked women in your life? Now think of uh, the last year, and uh, think of yourself, who do you, who do you spend time with uh, in your normal course of life? Right? In the course of a week, a month, who do you spend time with? And what... How, how do they affect your relationship with God? Because it's interesting, you know, sometimes you have to do an audit or an inventory of your relationships with people, isn't it? Um, who do you spend time with? How do they affect your life? How do they expect your, affect your spiritual life and your relationship with God? Because the people that we hang around with have an influence on who we are. You know, I mean, it's true, isn't it? I mean, many times I've read a newspaper... If you want to lose weight, you hang around people who exercise a lot. Soon you'll be exercising and running the marathon and you, right? things like that. Same thing if you hang around wicked people, uh, they will affect you. you know, and uh, I know that uh, some of you have read the article that I wrote in the Presbyterian newsletter about why I'm not on Facebook anymore. And I remember uh, there was this friend of mine 
and so-called, he's supposedly a Christian, and I used to go to his Facebook page, and I would see him hanging out in karaoke bars and drinking alcohol and uh, very, doing very dubious things and, and saying, use, using a lot of dubious language on his Facebook. And you know, sometimes I, when I think of challenging this person, I think, you know, why do you spend all this time with all these people? And you say, well, I'm evangelizing them. But in reality, who is evangelizing who? Are you evangelizing them to Christ? Or are they evangelizing you to wickedness and to evil? Because from what I see in your Facebook, it's not so much you're evangelizing them. They, they don't seem to be changing, right? But they are evangelizing you. So, wisdom, if you pursue wisdom, it will tell you right, what effect uh, these people are having in your life and whether you should be hanging out with them. Uh, this guy, Skriner, uh, he's an American pastor, he made this uh, comment about the youth, the church youth, uh, in his, or the young people in the church. And he's saying, he notices that uh, when they hang out with other young people, uh, they are they're, they're influenced by other young people. And when you hang out with young people, what is very important? It's very important to be funny, to be humorous, rather than be godly. Uh, that's what he said. And I agree, isn't it? So, you know, when you hang out with other people, they influence you, especially young people. Right? When I notice young people, you know, it's very very important to have the clever comment, to, have the, to make the, the wise crack or the put down. So you hang out with these uh, other young people and rather than influence you to being godly, they influence you to, to, to be very funny, to make jokes so that you are popular. So what influence does your company have on your relationship with God and the way that you act? Are you pursuing wisdom? I think the third application comes also as you look at it and you ask yourself, are you uh, the wicked person who's influencing other people to wickedness? Because I think that's also true, isn't it? Uh, are your words perverse? Are my words perverse? Are, are, we, are we a bad influence on other people? Isn't it? When, when you think of the people you mix with and how do you influence them? Do you influence them to godliness and holiness and a better spiritual walk? Or do you influence them to actually be more uh, sinful. What is your effect on other people's lives? Well, if you pursue wisdom and you pursue it wholeheartedly, then it will teach you to avoid the wrong path and to avoid the wrong company of wicked people. But let's look at verse 16. Because here we come to the second person that wisdom uh, helps us to avoid. It will save you also from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. For her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirit of the dead. None who go to her return or attain the paths of life. Now, first thing I want to say is, and I, I agree with what the commentary says, uh, just because it says adulteress, doesn't mean that all the women in the congregation can say, okay, uh, that's fine, that doesn't relate to me, right? Okay, Because uh, the context, obviously, in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, is the, is the father speaking to the son, right? So obviously, he's going to warn, her of the, warn him of the adulteress, right? But, but that's just because of the way the chapter is, the format of the chapter. It, it equally applies to, right, it will save you from the adulterer. Okay, so women have to pay attention to in this passage. But if you look at the, the word 
adulterous and wayward wife, if you look at your translation, uh, in the ESV anyway, there's a footnote, isn't it? Because the adulterer, the adulteress is actually the strange woman and the wayward wife is the foreign woman. Now, why strange and why foreign? Now, I cannot mean that this person, the dangerous person, the adulterer or adulteress, is a foreigner. Okay, you can spot them off because they're, you know, they're not Jewish or they're holding another passport. No, because in verse 17, she ignored the covenant. She's ignored the covenant she has made with God. So this person is a covenantal person. But why is she then a strange woman or a foreign woman? She's strange and foreign because she's a stranger to the covenant that God has made with his people. She's foreign to the moral rules that God has given his people to live under. She, she is a stranger and foreigner to God. She doesn't have a relationship with God. And this is seen in the way that she uses her sexuality. Because God has said to his people, look, the only time you can have sex is within a marriage to one person, your husband, or to your wife. But here she's willing to, to step outside the covenant of God to, to express her sexuality in ways which are strange and foreign to what God has, has, has uh, instructed his people. So here again, if you look at verse 16, right? It says there, the first thing about the, the wayward wife is her seductive words, right? What does it say? With her seductive words. You remember, it began by saying the wicked people have perverse words. Well, here the adulteress has seductive words. She's, she seduces not just because of the way she's dressed, but because of the way of he or she talks. So in uh, chapter 5, verse 3, the next slide, it says, For the lips of the adulteress drip honey, and a speech is smoother than oil. Okay? So she's a sweet talker. She's a smooth talker. She promises a lot, but she is very dangerous. He is very dangerous. Now, I'm sure all of you would have, uh, for those of you who uh, go to Yahoo News or read the newspaper or in any way possible, you'll know that the big news this week is you know, the head of the Singapore Civil Defence Force and the head of the Central Narcotics Bureau somehow caught up in this corruption thing with this married woman, right? So they always talk about, oh, you know, how it's going to affect the men's careers. But when I read it, I always think, well, how is it going to affect the men's, the people's families? Right? There probably will be three families destroyed because of adultery. But I think it's, it's more than that. The Bible doesn't say, well, you know, if you do, you do these things, you'll destroy your marriage, you lose half your money, your children will be affected. No, it doesn't say that. What happens? It says there in verse 18, for her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirits of the dead. None who go to her return or attain the paths of life. Now the death here is not a death from a sexually transmitted disease, right? But death here I think literally means spiritual death. Spiritual death. Because the context is a broken relationship with God. Because she has a broken relationship with God, if you live in her, the sphere of her strangeness, strangeness and foreignness to God, you will have a broken relationship to God. And you too will be estranged from God and you will die. In Romans chapter 6, verse 20, it says, right up here, next slide. Oh, Romans chapter 6, next slide. Uh, next one. Yep. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you, have now, you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. 
But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the adulteress is very dangerous. The adulterer is very dangerous because it doesn't just lead to brokenness in this world. Right? Uh, it, but it leads to death, spiritual death. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that, you know, that cute guy you meet at work or maybe the secretary at your office or your colleague or maybe the person who gets in touch with you on Facebook that you haven't met with for years or somebody that you're taking a class with, or somebody's husband or wife that understands you very well. Well, you have no business flirting with that person, or having any sexual thoughts or fantasies in your mind about that person, let alone to actually, you know, touch them in any way. And I think that wisdom also tells us, if you look at this passage, that what distinguishes the adulterer or the adulteress is not the way they dress. It's not who they... They're ordinary people is the words they use. Isn't that what it says there? Verse 16. Seductive words. Because we often think, I, I don't know, maybe, not, I'm, maybe I'm, I, I just think this way, right? Whenever you think of adulterer, what do you think? You know, you, I mean, to me, like, you think of the adulterer as this suave Casanova sort of character, right? Slick back hair, you know? Very cool looking, wears all the, you know, good clothes. And you, you think of the adulteress, and we, I mean, this is easier. When you think of the adulteress, who do you think of? You always think of, the mainland Chinese woman coming to steal the husband, right? That's what you always think of that way, isn't it? It's okay. Well, the Bible's telling me avoid these sort of people. But sadly, uh, many people who I know who commit adultery look very normal. They look like just you and me. And some of them call themselves Christian. You know, that's the problem, isn't it? Because the Bible tells us we need wisdom and knowledge and understanding to avoid these people. Now, a few uh, years ago, I remember uh, a female Christian acquaintance sent me a, a message and wanted to be my Facebook friend. And I felt a bit uncomfortable about it, so I asked my wife. And uh, my wife said, I don't think that's a good idea. And I think it's a really good thing because actually, I read this book about adultery and they said spouses are the best people, the best defense against adultery because they have a sixth sense to know where other people are, 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 are behaving in a, you know, in a inappropriate way towards you. And that was a really good thing that I, I didn't become a friend on Facebook. Because actually, later on, I learned that she, she had committed adultery with another Christian person. So, wisdom... Uh, this person is a very normal person, by the way, right? Okay, she's not mainland Chinese or whatever. Or, you know, She's not one of those caricatures of an adulteress in your mind. But wisdom will teach you. Wisdom and knowledge will teach you to avoid these situations and these people. Okay, it goes on in verse 20 then. In verse 20 it says, Thus, next, uh, next slide. Okay, thus, you will walk in the ways of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land and blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the unfaithful will be torn from it. Now here this passage talks in terms, again, of a covenant relationship with God, of a contractual relationship with God. We've said over the last two weeks that when God saved His people out of Egypt, He gave them the name Yahweh, Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters. And what He meant was that from that moment on, He would be their God and they would be His people. He would be faithful to them and they must be faithful to Him. 
And if that was so, he would bless them in the land. Right? The land was expression of God's care for his people. So in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28, which is up here, next slide, right? it says this, If you do not carefully follow all the words of this law, law, which are written in this book, and do not revere this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, the Lord will send fearful plagues on you, and your descendants harsh and prolonged disasters and severe and lingering illnesses. He will bring upon you all the diseases of Egypt that you dreaded, and they will cling to you. The Lord will also bring on you every kind of illness, sickness and disaster not recorded in this book of the law, until you are destroyed. You who are as numerous as the stars in the sky will be left but a few in number, because you did not obey the Lord your God. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please Him to ruin and destroy you, you will be uprooted from the land that you are entering to possess. Now that word here, uprooted, is actually the same word, exactly the same word in verse 22, the unfaithful will be torn from it. Next slide. Or actually go backwards. This word torn here, uh, go forward, is the same as uh, the word uprooted here. So what the book of Proverbs is saying is, if you break covenant relationship with God, God will break His relationship with you, and you will not be blessed by God anymore. And it's the same for us as Christians. Uh, if we choose to break relationship with God, then God will break relationship with us, and we will lose His blessings to us, both in this world and the world to come. And I think this is a very important lesson for us, because sometimes when I talk to people, they have this strange idea that their relationship with God is independent of anything or any action that they do. Some people actually said to me, you know, oh, actually God will forgive me. That's his business. His business is in the forgiveness business. But that's not true. If we break relationship with God and we persistently uh, reject Him, he, he will not forgive us anymore. And that's why we must keep, learn, keep learning the lessons of Proverbs chapter 2 and pursue wisdom and walk in the right path and not walk in the wrong path. Now, the saddest thing, I think, for, uh, for a parent... Uh, in this life is to see children make wrong decisions. For those of you who are parents, I'm sure you know the pain that uh, it makes uh, for you, you and your life when your children make bad decisions. And I know that um, one year, uh, the principal of my theological college was invited to our year gathering. It's like a camp before we you know, finished theological college. And he, he was sharing with us about his five children, he had three boys and two girls, and all were Christian except one. And this one child had persistently rejected God at a certain age and made one bad decision after another, had become a, you know, a very, in a bad state, he became a drug addict and, and you know, made all these mistakes in his life. And uh, when my uh, principal was sharing this, he, he, he had tears in his eyes for this one child who had made all these bad decisions. And we sort of asked him, what happened, right? I mean, there were five, four made, you know, same, seemingly good decisions. They brought up in the same environment, same upbringing. Christians prayed for them, the parents prayed for them too. But yet this one child kept making the wrong decisions, right? He kept marking up his life and throwing it all away. And I think that as we look at the chapter 2 of the book of Proverbs, it's the same thing. These are God's people living in God's land under the benefit of God's word. And God is saying to him, look, He's inviting them. Notice he's not, there's no instruction words here, right? You must do this. He says, if you do this, if you come to me, if you learn from me, if you cry out for wisdom, 
if you search for it single-mindedly, you will know the fear of the Lord. You will have a relationship with me. You will be blessed and protected and kept safe from the dangerous people and dangers of this world. So the choice for us is the same, isn't it? If you know God's word, if you know God, if you know the blessings that come from being saved in Jesus Christ, then don't throw it away, but keep searching and and looking for wisdom, keep looking at God's word and, and knowing God, knowing the knowledge that comes from a relationship with God and to live rightly before you. Now, sorry, before him. Now, as you read this, uh, I realized I put this in just this morning when I woke up. And I was thinking, you know, some of the older people in the congregation, uh, that might be me now, I realized. You know, you might sort of read this thing, you say, oh, my son, okay, it must relate only to my children. Lah, right? That's only for young people, right? But it's not true. It's not true at all. This passage is for everyone. It's for every person. You could be 100 years old and this passage is for you. Because God is still saying to you, keep applying yourself in learning His wisdom, His word. Make sure you keep staying on the right path and avoiding the wicked people. Because, like I said in the introduction, life is a bit tiring, isn't it? And your spiritual life might feel like it's very tiring. And it's very, very tempting at whatever age to say, well, I've been trying so hard for so many years, maybe I'll just let myself go for a little while. You know, maybe like King David and Bathsheba, let yourself go. And what happens then? Well, you're making exactly the same mistake the book of Proverbs is telling you not to make. You've taken the wrong path, you've mixed with the wrong people, you've been influenced by the wrong things. We need to keep following God's word and living in the right path. I'm just going to leave you with 2 Peter chapter 2. And I think the idea is similar, although it's slightly different, but let me read it to you. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and sin and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. I pray that as we uh, understand Proverbs chapter 2, that that will not be us, that we will continue to always walk in the right path of life before God. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we will apply ourselves to understanding your word, to living it out, to storing it in our heart, to crying out for it, for calling out to, to, to understand it, uh, to really search for it as for hidden treasure. And dear Father, we pray that as a result, we will know you better all our lives, that we will fear you and you will give us even more wisdom. And dear Father, Help us to have true assurance to know that it will be worth it. That it is right to live our lives in this way. Even though it's difficult and tiring, we will get the benefit of your protection and your shelter. Uh, that we will have life, true life, and we will have protection against all the wickedness and evil in this world. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.